Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top-class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com, which is linked up in the show notes, check it out, and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Yosef Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to Papi's National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore. And Program Design, delivered by Coach Robert Dos Remedios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just want to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. Consultant James Smith from Global Sport Concepts is back on with me for his monthly interview on the All Things Strength and Wellness podcast. In this episode, James and I discuss culture, coaching competence, and Maslow's hierarchy of needs within the governing dynamics of coaching. As always, guys, this was another outstanding episode with James, and I hope you really, really enjoy it. James, thank you so much for making time as always. Just for people who are listening, we've already been speaking for like 35 minutes and we're, we're resonating very well today. I think we're both having a good crack, as I say. Uh, it was a very stimulating conversation we just had before, and so I'm in great form right now. But the topic I chose for today, uh, you speak about in the book, um, you speak about Maslow's hierarchy of needs on page 59. I'm just going to pull it up here. So I'm going to get you to speak about that and its place within the government dynamics. So take it away, Sa. This points towards the some, something I just mentioned off the air, the, the spectrum of implications that a sport coach has on everyone. I'll, I'll borrow from psychologist Jordan Peterson's vernacular here, dominance hierarchy. So there's a, there's a clearly understood dominance hierarchy. They're almost all vertical and professional sport in which the 
operational hierarchy is sometimes binary with the administrative or, or executive level, depending upon the sport and the scale that the sport exists at at the highest level, how big it is, how many financial resources. And so in, in most of the professional sports worldwide, at the highest levels, you have the, the front office, in which case the administration is taking place, and then you have the operation side, which is all facets of coaching. And they, they usually have different dominance hierarchies in terms of who's in charge of which. But more importantly, everyone should understand the, the significance of a dominance hierarchy and, and where in the hierarchy individuals exist and what that allows them to influence and, and how these hierarchies work on the basis of substrate level psychological principles. And this spectrum of implications of the sport coach, even in a vacuum such as an operational one in which it, it's not necessarily influencing, let's say the administrative aspect of the organization and again, I'm using professional level here as the example because these, these hierarchies affect every level of sport down, down to the grassroots level. It's just that the logistics change. And no matter what the level, the reach of influence that the sport coach has across the facets of what I will, I'll, I'll, just, use, I'll just use the term human well-being which I understand is ambiguous until defined as being this set or the space of possibilities that is influenced and implicated by a sport coach, which is why, according to my argument, there must be a much more rigorous set of qualifications that serve to define objective competency. Because again, as I mentioned off Error, Robbie, if we exclude from the sake of discussion the most face value subject matter domains that a sport coach influences, what, what we're removing is, okay, the, the preparation from athletes and the outcome of co their competitions. If I say for the sake of discussion, table those and let's talk about additional facets on this. I use the term well-being, but that's not important additional facets of influence that a sport coach has on you know the, the lives the lives of the individuals with whom he or she is in direct contact with and, and in different levels of contact depending upon the logistical organization of the infrastructure then what we begin discussing is psychology and emotional development and intellectual development and the social skills and the aggregate psychosocial skills and psycho-emotional and psycho-behavioral. And we go on down that list of the facets of life and well-being that are implicated by sport coaches. And again, on face value, some of this is recognized because those who would advocate, for example, for children to participate, particularly in team sports, is because of the social implications and what, it, what is derivable as a result of 
interacting in that type of social environment under the context of sport, you know, that's not lost on those who advocate for team sport participation as a mode of social development. Somewhere along the way, however, this gets lost in terms of that argument being or that discussion being taken to deeper levels of sophistication, which is to say, correct, that there are very important implicated messages and lessons and sets of instructions that result from participating in social dynamics. Team sport is one example of that. However, let's keep talking about that. What are, what are they? How are they implicated? What are the consequences of a lack of knowledge in this aspect of leadership stemming from a youth coach or a young adult coach or an adult coach or professional or international level or Olympic team? It doesn't matter where on the, the, the spectrum. It's that that discussion needs to be taken further such that you know, we've talked about this before and I wrote about it in the book and I've spoken about this quite a, a bit that the, the lack, for example, one example only, the lack of emotional regulation, so more broadly speaking, the, the lack of self-regulation that so many coaches have at all levels, which is demonstrated by their inability to maintain composure in practices, in games, when they are confronted with unfavorable situations and they're now yelling and screaming and the, you know, the associated derogatory language that, as you know, Robbie, this is ubiquitous in sport and it's, it's ubiquitous amongst the vacuum segregations of specialties. The, the language that coaches use to attempt to, let's say, inspire or motivate or encourage an athlete to make different decisions or to work harder or, any number of examples that goes down that rabbit hole that, that are encapsulated by derogatory language, insulting language, explicatives, et cetera, to, to not understand what is potentially affected by this language and how utterly stifling it can be for the, 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 the the actual intention, as good as it might be for a coach to have using derogatory language as a form of, say, negative reinforcement or encouragement, to, to lack the understanding of how it can have the utter opposite effect as they intend, meaning on the population of athletes, of which there are many, who are involved in sport for specific reasons that are products of unhealthy childhood environments, mm. different levels of abuse, single parent households, again, the verbal, physical, emotional abuse. There's a very high percentage in, in professional sport who, who come from this aspect of the, the spectrum and just how counterproductive it is to speak to an individual who's carrying with them any number of trauma sets as a result of early childhood 
experiences that were so far from what is optimal, which is again tied into this hierarchy of needs that we will touch on. This number is profound and the implications of speaking to someone with derogatory language who had this type of childhood is the very definition of incompetency. Meaning you're incompetent if you're using derogatory language and directing it towards someone who's dealing with a, a, a trauma set of childhood negative emotional reaction experiences to the abusive environment. It's, it, it gets you laughed out of the building in any domain of knowledge coming from the psychological, where ironically, Robbie, again, we have these fascinating contradictions that, you know, we were laughing about the surgeon or the plumber analogy and how what just, you know, what wouldn't last a minute in these professions is actually ubiquitous in sport. Similarly, what wouldn't last a minute in this psychological reference frame where you're, you know, you're, you're, you're demonstrating your competency as a sport coach by defending your thesis argument in each one of the governing dynamics of coaching. And, and if you attempt to defend a thesis argument in the psychological lecture hall, that is your attempt to rationalize why you use degrading, insulting, belittling, just to name a few, language towards athletes without the, the knowledge of how potentially disastrous this is when it's directed towards someone who's got a, a history of, of traumas that are related to similar types of verbal abuse, you now got laughed out of that lecture hall. You, you, you are not even going to be able to be taken seriously by this room full of experts because you just revealed your incompetence. But ironically, Robbie, not only is this type of language quite ubiquitous in all sport at various levels from different types of coaches, it's actually celebrated, Robbie. It's celebrated. These, these coaches are complimented for how passionate they are and how much they care and, and how these apologies direct towards their objective lack of self-regulation. So it's, it's important that these discussions penetrate far deeper than the surface level variety at which they exist in sport. And, and, and this is where we have to confront the, the reality that, you, that we are both aware of, as, as you know, you've mentioned many times and we were just talking about off air. So much of what I'm criticized for is overcomplicating. And clearly my response to that is in no way whatsoever am I overcomplicating. What I am doing is I am raising the level of sophistication that these subject matters must be discussed and understood because this is what is logically consistent with my argument for objective coaching competency.
we, we must speak at a more sophisticated level about what it means to be competent to coach due to these implications. And I'm just giving the, the one set of example that does not directly relate to the, you know, tactical, technical preparation and competition outcomes, even though these attributes that I'm speaking about in the, you know, the psychosocial, the emotional, they are steeply implicated in those. It's that to, to the, to those in, in whom have a parochial understanding of sport coaching, they, they do not see the, the, the depth of sophistication that connects these facets to the outcome of sport coaching. And then what's, what's worse, Robbie, is that due to the insular cultures that affix themselves to sports around the world, getting to the objective truth of what actually exists requires some digging because nobody wants to burn bridges. People want to save face. They want to cover their ass. They do not want to limit their future opportunities. And so this makes difficult the, the opportunity for the, the average individual to gain these insights because you're not going to hear what I am criticizing as being objectively true. You're not going to hear this spoken about in most interviews with coaches and athletes, media panels, documentaries, because people aren't going to speak to this level of honesty because of how broadly and deeply it would implicate and tarnish the reputations of many who are held to high esteem because the, 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 you know, the, the, the voting parties don't know any better in the industry. So the, those of us that both have this broader set of knowledge and the, the knowledge and awareness of how this exists in sport, and of course this carries over to any other professional domain, must be willing to have the conversation and, and have the conversation. And you, you've heard, I referenced psychologist Jordan Peterson earlier, and I've obviously referenced neuroscientist Sam Harris on many occasions, and these other intellectuals, Brett Weinstein and Eric Weinstein and Shapiro, and these, they're, they're, they're populating what has been termed, I think, by Eric Weinstein, the intellectual dark web, and they're really gaining a lot of great traction holding public conversations, uh, public conversations, debates, discussions, all that encapsulates in these lecture halls around the world. Go to YouTube and listen to these discussions, and they're fantastic. It's deeply intellectual level discussion that's pertaining to various psychosocial intellectual facets of society. And, and I, I reference them, Robbie, first of all, because anyone listening, I, I would strongly encourage them to, if, you're, if they're not already aware, to, to listen to these discussions that these individuals have. And more importantly, that they serve as an example that this type of conversation, for example, the one that you and I have every, every month, needs to be more commonplace and it needs to be heard 
by more and more people in sport such that it stimulates similar conversations in and around sport that will serve to invariably unequivocally raise the bar because because there will be no choice but to recognize the objective truth of what is being discussed and and then rise to the occasion to to satisfy what is now becoming more assimilated more broadly assimilated at larger scales and these individuals who have been flying under the radar in my argument up till now will, will no longer be able to hide and incompetency will no longer be able to survive once the the broader set of knowledge is assimilated at, at l- larger and larger numbers of individuals. The, the way that I want to feed this into the, the topic of the discussion here, which is the Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs that I, that I quote in the book. Interestingly enough, I, we all know the, the, the comprehensive encyclopedic nature of the book Super Training. And I, I had forgotten or I wasn't even aware that Maslow's hierarchy is illustrated in Super Training as well. It, didn't, I didn't, it wasn't until after I actually published The Governing Dynamics of Coaching that I was flipping through Super Training and I realized, how about that? It's, it's in here as well. And for obvious reason, because of its fundamental relevance to sport, amongst many others, and so obviously Voroshansky and 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 Sif were wise enough to include it. And for those who do not own Super Training or the Governing Dynamics of Coaching, cop, this, cop, cop yourself on the. <laughs> This, this hierarchy is a pyramidal structure at which the bedrock is physiological needs. The next level above that is safety. The next level above that is belonging and love. The next one up is self-esteem. And the apex, the top of the pyramid, is self-actualization. And what I give reference to in the book is how this significance must be integrated and interwoven into the cultural establishment and how some of these needs in the hierarchy are more directly implicated than others in how the sports cultural establishment must function and be developed for the logical reasons that are self-explanatory the more that you learn about the, the substrates of each of the hierarchical needs. And both what we were speaking about offline and even what I've just mentioned now regarding the, the, the facets of a life lived that we would describe in categories and just how many of those are deeply implicated by sport coaches apart from what's directly obvious in terms of tactical, tactical preparation and game outcomes yeah. are, are equally embedded and relevant in the hierarchy of needs when we speak towards any facet of them, particularly those at the apex with respect to what, what does it mean for an individual 
to self-actualize? What, what does it mean for an individual to have or to develop self-esteem? And, and how are those you know, important and relevant and deeply in, implicated in a, a life well-lived, apart from a sports career well-accomplished, well-achieved, well-fulfilled? And, and in answering this question, it, it should be completely obvious that, that simply you have to have the knowledge to understand what this hierarchy, and then even more broadly, what the implications of culture are on life. And what that then mandates is the associated knowledge. So tell me if you want to discuss any of the, the particular areas or how, how, you want to, how you want to shape this. Well, uh, what, what I'd like to do now is just go into the, the sections of the hierarchy you've outlined and you can just take that away for the last 20 minutes or so. But I just want to um, make a few points here. Uh, like um, It's more so just as you were talking, like things I just wanted to say were coming to my mind. So first thing is, I'm reading, as I told you before, I went hot online, reading Robert Sapolsky's book, Behave, and so much of what you just said resonates with me right now because obviously the book is Top of Mind Awareness. So for instance, he talks an awful lot about, uh, and I'm actually on the chapter right now about how culture shapes a a person's behavior. But the chapter before that, he talked about uh, certain gene interactions. Um, And listen, the book's 700 pages, so for anyone listening, you got to go get that book. But actually one thing I do want to say is, if you were to just get Robert Sapolsky's book and get the Government Dynamics and read them, you would actually see how much they complement one another. And Robert Sapolsky is one of like, the top world experts on human behavioral biology. So that just goes to show like uh, how much James did a good job of putting, putting down how important it is to understand human behavior in the Government Dynamics. But one thing Sapolsky talks about is that he's like, you know, when, when he got to the chapter on, on genes, he was like, you know, we try to see, did this gene have this sort of correlation with this uh, characteristic? And he said, it did. But then this study showed the opposite. And he's like, what's going on? And he's like, because it's, 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 it's all about gene and environment. So he's like, it's all about genes in a certain context. But he says, there was one, there was, there was one thing that did show like a more consistent factor with gene expressions. And he's like, if child abuse was associated, if they came from low economic status, if they came from single parent uh, households, he's like, so if these consistent environmental things were shown up, we saw that this certain gene may be more correlated to this type of behavior. And it just kind of rang true to me when you were saying like, yeah, you do see a lot of, you know, the certain like um, athletes who play like in NFL football come from broken backgrounds. And then like, you see like these coaches and they're just derogged, the, 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 just the absolute abuse they give to them. Like, and, you know, if you go back then to the plasticity of the brain, like how certain parts of the limbic system are like wired to certain words of emotion. Like, so you get, you know, if you brought up like in a certain background and you already have an emotional sort of, like basically what the policy says is like, if you learn something as a stress or an anxiety response, like the amygdala fires more due to a certain reaction of someone like so and let's say it's just like it's negative reinforcement and you are one of those athletes and that's what the coach gives you negative reinforcement it just is gonna like 
light up that enigma more and more fear, more anxiety, and you're going to get the complete opposite of what you want from that athlete, which is to obviously play better, but again, it's because you're competent in the area of knowing like psychological preparation and obviously how culture can shape background. And then when you bring it back down to like plasticity of the brain and then right down to how like synapses fire and all that stuff. But sorry, that's just top of mind awareness now because I'm on that. And just one thing before I let you get into the specific areas of Maslow's hierarchy, and thank you very much for being patient and, and listening to my ramble, is that currently in Ireland, the uh, Dublin senior football team, they just recently won their fourth All-Ireland Senior Football Championship. So for the internationalists, that's like winning their fourth Super Bowl in a row. And they've actually won six of the last eight. So since 2011. So they're, they're the powerhouse right now in, in Irish football and getting football. But the manager at the moment is a guy called Jim Gavin. And every time I think about the Dublin team, I, I think about Jim Gavin and I think about you. And the reason is because Jim's a pilot. And I have friends that have played for this team and and so now, like, if there's no dumb team listening to this, but if they are, they can correct me. But he's very, very much about like consistency and protocols and and being competent. So like, apparently, he says to the team, like, and this is like backhand information, but apparently, he said to the team one day, he's like, "Listen, I'm a pilot, and if I am allow myself to be incompetent for just a second, I can kill people." Like. Like so, he flies planes and all, and like apparently that that rang true towards like the the all the players. But the reason why I brought up Jim too is because if you ever see him in a match, James, he never shows emotion. He's always on. The, he never he's never on the sideline shouting instructions to players. He just sits. He might like stand up and like speak to someone on the line, but he never roars, never shows emotion. Is never disrespectful to any officials. His emotional regulation is absolutely outstanding. And uh, now people are going to argue and say, "Listen, there's like there's like fucking your man Bobby Bowden in Florida, like he was, and there's other people who are like flamboyant in the line, and they'll use those counterarguments." But I'm just, I'm not, I'm not having that as a discussion here. I'm just saying that he comes to mind, and the fact that he's a pilot, and you've often used domains like surgery and people being pilots, and like their their ability to be able to emotion regulate, and I just rang through them with Jim and see now he's incorporated that now into like his his managerial role with Dublin, and like he's. He's without question one of the best managers of all time. Like so, just Zapolsky's book. I'd invite people to read that because it's it's it integrates so nicely into what James covers in the physical preparation aspect of the government dynamics, and then just Jim Gavin with Dublin and his emotional regulation. So they were the two things. And so now for now until the last, I got fifteen twenty minutes. If that's okay, uh, you Mazda's hierarchy, so you can get into the different sections. If you've anything to add, there's one one correction there, Rob. You, you just said the physical preparation component. Oh, sorry, the, sorry, psychological preparation. Sorry. And this is the sport coaching education of the government dynamics. And indeed, I actually, I actually meant to say the psychological preparation aspect okay. of the government dynamics. Excuse me. Sorry. The, the indeed, Sapolsky's knowledge domain is rich and 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 fortified by by very sophisticated levels of explanation and what what readers future readers will be pleased to see in this governing dynamics of football that I'm writing with Raymond Verheyen. I'm, I'm just completing my contributions on culture and psychology where I have an abundance of research that I'm quoting and in integrating into this that, that expands upon just how deep and rich the subject matters of the, the cultural implication from an evolutionary and a psychological perspective are in behavioral outcomes and all the, all the associated domains. And so, there's a lot to be there's a lot to be gleaned there and i'm i i'm going to 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 reinforce what you mentioned regarding the the, the pilot and the the associated psychological demeanor because similarly i 
in my consulting, I mentioned offline that I'm doing more and more psychological consulting directly with professional athletes. And there was a, everyone in the world would be familiar with this. It was in 2010, I think it was, there was a airplane that was a commercial airliner that was landed in the Hudson River in New York City. They, they made a movie on this, didn't they? They made a movie about it called Sully and the, 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 the plane captain. His last name is Sullenberger. And speaking directly towards the point you were making regarding the composure of pilots, I was, I was listening to an interview with Captain Sullenberger in which the, he was describing what he had to think about in order to land the plane as safely as possible regarding you know, trajectories and angles and, and terminal velocities on the low end, just above the thresholds. And the, the interviewer stated, and in addition to all that, you had to remain calm. And his response was worthy of sharing here. And his response was, I had a strong physiological reaction to the situation. I'm not quoting him here. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't have the quote in front of me. Yeah, yeah, I, had a, I, I had a strong physiological reaction to the situation. So I had to force calm as a result of my training. So it's, it's, it's deeply profound because if, if that's not obvious in what, what he was saying there to those listening, the physiological reaction he's referring to is that here he was with the recognition that I'm going to have to land this commercial airliner in a river and all that's associated with that. So the physiological reaction, the, you know, the, the body's recognition of tissue damage, death, existential risk, crisis, these, I think the, there might have been maybe just under 300 passengers on the plane. So all of that is summing as the recognition of the situation and due to his training he forced calm so anyone can listen to the cockpit voice recording between him and air traffic control and what you are going to hear is utterly calm you're going to hear objective statements matter of fact coming from a pilot who is subsequently landing a commercial airliner in a river. Now, the way that I describe it in the book, Robbie, is it answers the question from those who would refute the need to have this level of composure in sport. And, and you know, you said it yourself. People would argue, oh, we don't need that. Bowden and you can, you can name all the prominent sport coach figures who are part of their fame is linked to their lack of emotional regulation and the, and the tantrums that they would throw, which is that they're that's associated with them being winning coaches. And so it's celebrated as opposed to being crit criticized on substantive grounds for how much negative affect is associated and implicated, potentially implicated, by that type of demeanor, negative affect, affect is the psychological jargon for emotional state or, or feeling and how the, 
this is just ubiquitous in the in the literature, Robbie, how creating for negative affect or creating for a negative state of emotion, which is any of that spans the spectrum of anxiety, fear, anger, etc. It diminishes relational processing. So it's deeply implicated in sensory motor processing. And it focuses more on tunnel vision. And it also inhibits access to working memory. And so as I describe, yep. when, we, when, when we are talking about tactical execution and tactical preparation in sport and what we are grading, regardless, is it Gaelic football? Is it rugby union? Is it American football? Is it ice hockey? When we are grading tactical execution and we are assigning, let's say, percentages to these decisions and actions that are made in the behalf of these team sport athletes, the substrate levels where knowledge must be developed is what the mechanics of tactical execution are. And if if I was speaking to a, a football coach or an American football coach or a rugby coach and I said, give me the elevator version of what tactical preparation means to you. What, what, what does that mean? Well, what you're going to get Robbie from not from nine out of 10 or, or 90 out of a hundred of these different coaches is, you know, whatever, if it's football, it's well, you know, we've been working on the one, four, four, one flat diamond. And we've also integrated, you know, the, the one, four, three, two, one approach for the upcoming opponent. So we have these small sided games and I'm, I'm sort of deciding on whether or how much of, you know, six V six, versus 4v6, versus 11v11, I'm going to integrate throughout the week in concert with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then we, and then we go to the you know, American football, and it's well on, on, on defense. We're installing more of the, the, the nickel package with our, with our five cornerbacks, and we're, we, run, we run a 4-3 on the line of scrimmage and then into the second level, and so this is implicated in what we work on in the drills. And then we go in the rugby union. We talk about, well, we're working on this new line-out scheme and how we transition into phase play from this particular orientation of our players and so on and so forth. This, this is the answer we get with tactical preparation. And what I say to all these coaches, okay, okay, fair enough, coaches, but you're, you're all missing the, the grand point that underpins these tactical evolutions, which is the modes by which these athletes are processing sensory input the the degree and the access to which they have to their working memory that are steeply implicated by their psychological state this is what underpins these are the mechanics of tactical execution because as my friend and associate raymond verheyen elucidates upon is is what are tactics it's decision plus action and then what i do is i I expound upon that and what are decisions and actions products of, and this is where the relational versus item specific processing comes into play, the access to working memory, et cetera, that this is what affects, these are the products of making a decision. And then what's more, they are products of motor response, perceptual motion, I mean, we, we, there's, a, there's, there's research that's even pointing to how you know, physio, physiological fatigue, for example, changes motor perception. Yeah, of course, yeah. So 
these substrate layers that are more foundational, they're, they're highly emergent in and of themselves. If I talk about, you know, let's have a conversation on sensory motor ability, that's a very comprehensive subject matter domain in and of itself. It's just that it's more fundamental than what is commonly understood as being the bedrock of tactical preparation. And this is not independent of what we were speaking about earlier in terms of these hierarchy of needs, because if we contextualize self-actualization in the context of sport, what we are, what we are framing is the definition of the highest level of possible achievement for, for each individual athlete, which then in the team sport context sums as a higher level of team outcome. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so they're, they're, they're inseparable and there, there simply has to be a, a stronger advocacy for the development of this knowledge, whether it's what I've termed the governing dynamics or, or any other jargon that represents the, the spectrum of knowledge domains that are, unarguably deeply implicated in in sport coaching and how a thesis level defense must be given in a coach's argument and defense for knowledge in each one of these subject matter domains in order for he or she to qualify as competent. Yeah. This is Can this you is can idea. you just re- repeat that because I actually meant to ask you to repeat that around because you, that's the second time you said it in the podcast but the first time you kind of said it like kind of just through a true true conversation and I don't think a lot of the listeners might have picked up on it and you have stated this in previous podcasts but maybe it's just me too because it's really starting to like the light bulb of that is like really starting to like go off. Like it's finally sure. like as a, the penny has dropped in that. Cause again, as I said to you, I think this is often I said like people, one of the arguments they make or not arguments, one of the criticisms they have, it's a false criticism is they go, well, Jay Smith says like you need to be an expert in every domain. It's like, no, 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 that's not, that's not what he says. He says you need to be competent in other domains. So, and then the next question is, and you just already answered it, but I just wanted to reiterate it is, what what level of competency do we need to get in these domains? And you just answer, but just let you answer it again. The the objective criteria for the competency, the, the easiest way I, I've thought to explain this is by using the thesis defense. And yeah. so very good, by the way. This is what I like. Anyone who anyone's listening who has a PhD in which they had to pro- provide a defense for their thesis understands the the work involved in the assimilation of knowledge involved that's necessary to successfully defend an argument in a particular subject matter realm. And what that does not entail is such a broad level of bandwidth understanding of the entire subject matter domain. So this is important for everyone to understand it. And anyone who has a PhD nods their head. It's a foregone conclusion, but anyone who does not have a PhD, this may not be obvious to them in that just because someone has a PhD in no way does that make them a subject matter expert 
on that field as a whole. Mm-hmm. What, what it should state is that they are a subject matter expert on the defense of their thesis argument yeah, and, what, yeah. and what that entailed. And so in these governing dynamics of coaching that are culture and psychology and analysis and intellect and technique and tactics and sensory motor, et cetera, each one of those, my argument is that if, if you are to claim that you are an objectively competent sport coach, you must successfully defend a thesis argument in every single one of the governing dynamics. So when you are selecting your, your, your thesis topic to defend in psychology, this is not to be confused with becoming a subject matter expert on every single branch of psychology. Yeah. It's, that, it's that you elucidate upon a facet, whether it's evolutionary psychology or social psychology or clinical psychology, et cetera, and how it is deeply implicated in this broader argument of sport coaching competency. And when you defend that specific argument, you must win the approval of the panel of experts in psychology, various branches, who will check off that you have successfully defended that argument up to their standards of psychological expertise. And then, and then you go to the sensory motor one, and now you've got, you've got neuroscientists in the audience. You've got neuropsychologists yeah. in the audience. You've got biomechanists in the audience because it's an aggregate domain. And you're, you're selecting a specific argument within this broad realm of the sensory motor apparatus. And that's what you must defend. And so you go through each one of the governing dynamics of coaching. And similar to a PhD in any discipline, your objective competence is checked off by the degree to which you can successfully defend a thesis argument in every single one of the governing dynamics. That's what I'm arguing for as competency in the objective sense. That's what I can do and that's what I'm ready to do at any moment to, to give a lecture in a specific application of any of these governing dynamics to a panel of only whatever biomechanists or physiologists or behavioral biologists Mm -hmm. or evolutionary psychologists. I, and this was long ago, Robbie, I, I, I had this thought, I don't know, 15 years ago, 2003. I remember well, what I'm specifically referencing here is I remember I was, I was just sitting around thinking one day, answering the question for myself, am, am I now ready to, to get up in front of the absolutely most knowledgeable people in planet Earth in a given subject matter realm? Am I ready to go and demonstrate my competency in speaking about subject matter that pertains to their field of expertise that and it's and it's not even that I have to confirm what is consensus agreed I can refute it as as you know almost any scientist is seeking to do refuting what the status quo is I can refute what is some consensus agreement in neuropsychology or, or in applied biomechanics in so long as the nature of my refutation 
is steeped in rich explanatory ability, what those experts would then say is, you know, fair enough, James refuted what the consensus outlook is in this particular domain. However, we, we were very pleased and, and impressed with the sophisticated level of explanation that he, that he brought along with his criticism. So that, you know, so yes, we, we chuck off that, that is a successful defense. And I, I had this thought long before. James, I, I, James, I, just, I, let, just let you know, I literally have like two minutes. <laughs> the, yeah, this is the end. I, I had this thought long before I formalized the idea of writing the governing dynamics of coaching, which was just how ready am I to speak in front of a panel of experts across 12 or 15 subject matter domains and what's currently understood is sex successfully defend a thesis argument. So I, I did this for myself and anyone else with the aptitude and motivation can do it as well, but not just anybody, which is why not just anybody should be able to be a sport coach. Mm, great stuff. Uh, oh man, I'm so, damn you father time. I gotta go. But this, sorry, ju- just, uh, I no, I can't because if I ask this, we'll go on for another hour. So I'm going to have to wait till next time because there is something just, just on that, the whole, when you were talking about like the athletes and the, the sensory process and I want to make sure I'm understanding that correctly. I won't ask it though because if I ask, we, we, we just, we'll, we'll go on. I have to, I have to, I really want to ask, but I really don't want to end it, but I, I know that will just go on because I have to go. Okay. Just for the listeners. Ah, James, savage man, really appreciate it. So for everyone listening, you're spoiled. You were spoiled. I need to start charging for this. Okay. But anyway, for now, take care, be well, and stay strong. Mm-hmm.